Now, if you could, we will get into Luke chapter 6. I'll read that, and then I'll bring the man, the myth, and the legend back up, and he'll open God's Word. So, Luke 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in the hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their hearts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, all he said to him stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for who you are, for your very nature and character is good, patient, long-suffering. We thank you today for the word that you have offered us, and we pray that you would illuminate to it to us now. Illuminate it to me also. I pray that my study and preparation would be secondary only to you and to your spirit. We thank you this morning also for this church, for the work that you are doing in our life groups, in our staff, and in all the people here. Finally, Lord, we just thank you for the children. Thank you for this growing population of young people. May we see this not as a nuisance, as a problem, but as an opportunity, a mission field, and a great blessing. We thank you today. And we say these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. And Amen. You guys can be seated. Today's sermon is called Faith, the Product of Rest, Submission, and Trust. I am sure that many of you are just getting back from a, a possible spring break trip where you snuck away here and you are the faithful few who returned on the Lord's Day this Sunday. Congratulations, you are the remnant, the real ones, you know. The Eastons took a quick trip down to uh, my hometown to see my dad and sisters and, and the rest of the clan as well. And one night, uh, we were going to have pizza. And the inevitable battle ensues over who's going to pay for dinner. You know, they're like slapping the debit cards down on the, on the island. And I'm thinking to myself, like, Dad, I'm a grown man now. I'm 35. I have a wife. I have kids and a mortgage. You know, I'm, I'm taking my life up into my own hands. And then my dad kind of got frustrated and he looked at me in the way only a dad can look at a son. You know what I mean? Where he's whispering, but he's kind of yelling. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And he looks at me and he says, son, this will always be your home. But it's my house. And in my house, I'll decide if I'm paying for dinner or not. That was kind of the end of the argument, you know. <laughs> he had to remind me that I was a father and a husband and have a mortgage, but I am also a son and I am the away team in this argument. He was demonstrating his authority to me. And like a good son, I had to eat some free pizza. We see in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is establishing his authority as well. Now, we have to remember as we've been working through this 
series that line by line and verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, that we can get trapped sometimes into the thinking that Jesus or that Luke is writing the story of the life and times of Jesus, sort of a chronological history. It it is those things, but it is not only those things. Luke is not just writing a history, he's making an argument. He's arranging the stories of Jesus in a certain way, like you would lay out evidence in a case in order to convict the reader of a certain end. He has multiple arguments in his Gospel, but at, to this point, he's making one chief argument. The argument is this. That Jesus has come and He is rejecting the old Jewish sacrificial system. Starting all the way back, if you can remember, when Josh Breffel came here and guest preached, he started in Luke chapter 4, I believe it was. And in Luke chapter 4, 16, all the way to our passage today, we see the following events. See if you can notice Luke's argument taking shape here. I'm just going to read them off real quick. From chapter 4, he says, Jesus has proclaimed that He's the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. He enters the house of sinners. He lays His hands on sick and diseased people. He lays hands on a leper. Big no-no. Then He proclaims publicly in front of the scribes that He has the authority to forgive sins. He feasted with tax collectors and sinners. He said there was no reason to fast while He was with them. Then He summarizes His rejection of the Jewish religious system at the time by giving two parables. This is where we found Daniel's preaching so helpful last week when he said first that when Jesus describes the old and the new cloth, you can't put a new cloth on an old garment because it will rip. The one will reject the other. And the same with the new wine and the old wine skin. They are not compatible. In other words, Jesus is saying you cannot have us both. I have not come to update the Jewish system. I have come to replace it. We see this continuing on in our passage here today. Now he's confronting the Jewish leaders on their view of the Sabbath. Every single one of the things I just listed is a religious violation under the Jewish law and tradition of the time. Luke's argument in this passage culminates in chapter 6, verse 11. You can just turn there real quickly and underline it. When we finally see the response of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees' response to Jesus when, they, when Jesus rejects them. They don't humble themselves. They don't say, you know what? This guy's doing a lot of miracles. He's kind of got some power They don't confess their sin. They don't repent. No, they feel rejected by Jesus and they reject Him in return. That is what, as we zoom out through the whole Gospel of Luke and you're reading through it, you will notice as His central point to this point. And we are here at the culmination of His argument here today. The Pharisees believed in God but lost Him in a faithless attempt to obey. And when Jesus was right in front of their face, they rejected Him. The problem is, I think we can do the same thing. We tend to fall so easily into the trap set by the devil and the sons of disobedience. The snare that says we believe in God, we confess Him, we trust in Him, but then we live in the mire and the muck of our daily life. And isn't it hard? And we trip and we fall. And we trip and we fall again. And we struggle with addiction. Or we struggle with anger. Or we struggle with sin in some way or another. And we, we look ourselves in the mirror and eventually we say we need to take matters into our own hands. We make the time-old mistake of leaving faith and developing our own system. An institution, a personal religion to help us in our mind carry on towards righteousness. But when we do that, we abolish the truth. We minimize the sacrifice of God and we grieve the Holy Spirit. We make rules and call them traditions. We judge others and call it culture. 
And all the while, we think we're offering a life jacket for others to keep their heads and our heads above the waters of sin and death. But in actuality, we're tying rocks around our necks, only sinking us faster. Mind you, that the next generation is watching us do this to one another, judge one another, put systems in place over faith in God with one another, and they are learning to do the same thing. Maybe you could summarize it like this. We have from time to time, though we declare God, leave the high mountain of rest and submission to swim in the sinful waters of religion and man-made rules. But this passage is here not just to declare Jesus' rejection of the Pharisees and their rejection of Him. It is here also to provide a great hope. God's Word is so masterfully put together not just to declare to you and I that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but it also works as a handbook full of wisdom that helps us glean wisdom on how to avoid the, the snares and the trap that the devil sets in our life. How to identify sin before it creeps into our heart. And how to overcome sin by grace when it's ravaging our soul. This text that we find ourselves with is no different. There is wisdom in this passage far beyond just a study of what the Sabbath is. Today I submit to you three points. The rest in the Lord of the Sabbath, submission to the Lord of creation, and trust in the Lord of salvation. If you're a note taker, there's some sub points in here. They'll be up on the screen. If you're not, you can just close your eyes, go to sleep. Okay. I've had to wrestle with this, but I do think it's appropriate before we jump into these points, that we should spend a little time discussing the background of the Sabbath just to make sure that we are all on the same page. The Sabbath is defined as a ceasing from work. It's a rest from production. And we find this Sabbath rest idea first instituted all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. I'll read it for you. This is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God is finished with His creation. And it says this, Thus the heavens and the new earth were finished, and the host of all of them, everything that was in them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested. There's that word. On the seventh day, from all of His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from His work and all that He had done in creation. He finished His creation and He rests. Now, He doesn't rest because He's tired. Making the world would tucker me out, but not Him. He is a constant God, unchanging. Rest is not something He needed to recover. Rest is the very, as or is the very aspect of His nature. He is a God continually at rest. Now, the interesting thing to know in the first couple chapters of Genesis is in the creation story, we see this sort of poetic pattern start to develop in the text. At the end of every creation day, you hear this phrase, it was morning and then it was evening. It was morning and then it was evening. And then it was the next day. What's interesting is that where this phrase is not. You see, God rested on the seventh day and you'd expect for there to be it was morning and then it was evening and it was the next day, but it never happens. It's not in the text. He just moves on to the creation of Adam and Eve. It's this, it's this beautiful picture of when He is at rest um, saying that His creation is good, he, you are in a continual stage or, or, or position of rest in God's creation. He, there's work to be done, and He gives Adam and Eve work to do, but at that time, there is this perfect relationship between the restful presence and productive work. 
They're not separate things. Like when we, you know, we go on vacation because we need a rest from our work. Their work was their rest. There's this image in the garden where Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the day. I love that phrase. It's a perfect position. A perfect relationship. And then it falls apart. When Adam falls into sin... This relationship is fractured. It's interesting to note that God, when He curses um, after the sin, He doesn't curse Adam. He curses the ground. He says, your work is going to be hard. By the sweat of your brow, you will reap. And the making of food is going to be difficult. Your back is going to be sore. This is going to be a hard working life. In other words, He's saying, I'm giving you the labor without the rest. And He pushes them out of the garden. And for generations, this working, toiling relationship between God and man develops on where man is absent from God and he's working constantly. Even into slavery in Egypt when God calls Himself another man. Moses. In Exodus chapter 20, we see that God has elected this small group of people called the nation of Israel. And He says to them, I'm going to make you My people. And through you, you are going to tell the rest of the world what I am like by how you behave. And He pulls them out of working slavery in Egypt. And He wants to send them to this new land. Here's this picture again of a garden. He wants to send them to this beautiful place with milk and honey and apparently giant grapes. That was funnier when I wrote it but they mess it up. And there Moses is on the top of a mountain called Mount Sinai and he is given the law from God. The Ten Commandments. And the Fourth Commandment is where we find the Sabbath word again. That these people are to keep the Sabbath. It says in in, uh, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do your work. But the seventh, you shall rest. Do not do any work. The Sabbath was meant to serve as a reminder for these people, aware of the Genesis story, that the Sabbath day was a reminder that there was a a place in time where there was a perfect relationship between rest and work. It was also meant to hearken forward a hope that one day one would come that would redeem them and reverse the curse, bringing them back into working restful productive relationship. See, the Ten Commandments were not meant at that point to be this burden on top of them. It was meant to be a blessing. He's saying, this is what I'm like. I'm a God who would obey and and do these things. I want you to do the same likewise. And of course, they messed it up. And they mess it up again and again and again and they go to exile and into bondage and they go into war and they continue to, in the hardness of their heart, defy the law. And God has to put them in time out, as it were. Now, when the Old Testament ends, this is kind of the note it ends on. This sour, unyielding, painful work. When is this ever going to end? Note. And between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, about where we are now, there's about 400 years in the gap of written time. Now during that time, there's a group of scholars called, at the time called the Pharisee, and they get together and they say, we've got to stop violating the law. Because we just keep getting put into slavery and into exile. Enough is enough. How do we get the people on the same page where the nation of Israel will stop disobeying God? And they say, here's what we need to do. We need to really understand what the law is. Clearly, we need to memorize it. Know it well. And then what we need to do is we need to create some rules that are far enough away from the law and not let anybody break those rules. Because if they don't break those rules, they call it a fence. If they don't jump over that fence, they certainly can't violate the line of the law. This list got pretty long pretty quick. Eventually got so long it became a book. And then it became a really big book called the Mishnah. And eventually what happened over this 400 year span is this list of rules and regulation took prominence in the education of young people more than the very law and character of God. They developed rules and they lost their way. 
Maybe you say it like this, the heart of God has been lost by a religious tradition. And as we enter into the grain fields with Jesus on this Sabbath day, He is walking into a time in history when His very character and law has been replaced with a list of self-righteous rules. Okay, so we background enough? That was like a sermon all by itself. Trust me, I'm going to go really slow. So, (laughs) Let's begin in Luke chapter 6 as we have enough background now. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read again. It says this, On the Sabbath, while He was going through the grain fields with His disciples, they plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing it on their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's Saturday, and the disciples are making their way through a grain field as they walk to their destination. And as they're walking, the disciples are kind of grazing, you know, it's like a buffet. They're plucking a little bit of fruit from the grain, most likely barley, maybe wheat or corn. They're plucking the heads off of this, off of this um, harvest here, and they are rolling the husks around to get them off in their fingers and then popping them in their mouth. Now the Pharisees are out on the Sabbath day as well, following Jesus and essentially spying on His every move. They see the disciples picking heads of grain and ask, why are you doing this? unlawful thing. Now, Jesus responds with a question of His own. He's referring to a story in 1 Samuel that the Pharisees should have known well because of their study of the Word. But of course, they don't answer Jesus at all. And so He answers for them with a powerful and provocative phrase that we see when He says, I, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Picture, if you will, the Pharisees are like the nosy neighbor. You ever had the neighbor that like peeks through the blinds and they're always kind of spying, raising a ruckus when you don't do something right in your neighborhood? Never mind the fact that you shovel their driveway and yours when it snows and pick up their trash can when it falls over. They don't ever seem to see you doing anything positive, but when you're doing something wrong, they're out to get you. So there the Pharisees are peeking through the barley to find Jesus in sin. And of course, they never catch Him. In fact, Jesus catches them. They are the ones who realize they're on trial. Here's some points as we consider the rest. We need to rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. The first, aha, is rest. A characteristic of God's very nature. Look at the characteristical differences between the the Jesus and the Pharisees. If God's law is meant to be a reflection of who God is, who in this passage is behaving more like the law would ask? Maybe you could say it like this. Which character most represents, closely represents what it looked like in the garden before the fall? The ones peacefully walking through a field with their friends enjoying a Sabbath day? Or the one straining to find a flaw in another? One of the key giveaways to a mature faith is one who is both inwardly and outwardly at rest in their God. Now, we are people with emotions. God has made us to have stress and anxiety at times. This is how we were designed. In fact, Jesus Himself is in anguish in the garden and weeping over the loss of another. These are parts of our life, not something we should subdue. But I submit to you, beloved, we can both be in anguish and at rest at the same time. Because our hope is not in the outcome of our cancer diagnosis. Our rest does not come in our bank account. We rest in a risen Lord. The Lord not only of creation and of salvation, but the Lord of the very law 
of God. He is the one who makes the rules. The second point here, rules a characteristic of, of self-righteousness. What's a key giveaway of not resting? Consider the amount of rules that you put in your own life. Now, the disciples were not breaking any biblical law here. It was commonplace in the culture and the time. In fact, biblically in Deuteronomy, it says that a good harvester would, by their grace, charity to another, not harvest their whole crop so that you would leave some for the poor and the passerby. This is a commonplace thing to do. Consider, if you will, like uh, the toothpick at the hostess stand. To take a a toothpick is like totally understandable. Now, if you took the whole case of toothpicks, we might have a problem. You would be in violation of the law if you harvested somebody else's crop for yourself, calling yourself a passerby. That certainly would be a violation, but it's apparent that that's not what they're doing. No, the Pharisees are citing that the air of the disciples is actually work. They are working on the Sabbath. The religious leaders of the day, according to their Mishnah law, would say that by plucking the heads of grain, rolling them around in their fingers and popping them in their mouths, they would have violated four laws. They're guilty of reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. Think about this. Threshing and preparing food. They're cracking open a sunflower seed. They are so blind to their law that they can't see the truth when it's right in front of them. The commentator David Guzik puts it like this. I like this. He says, There were therefore four violations of the Sabbath in one mouthful. An obvious misuse of the law. Rules clouded their judgment. Instead of becoming receivers of the Sabbath, they became hunters for violators. And I think we can tend to do the same. Beloved, it's a good thing to resist sin. It's a helpful thing to create systems to help us and support us as we navigate this broken world. But you better be careful. Because so quickly, your system can be exalted in your heart. You've just made an idol. And you will open your heart self-righteousness. You will give success to something you created, you found, you paid for on the internet, whatever. Your belief system should not ever be overlaid on top of the Word of God. If you want to have some sort of a dress code standard within this church group, I I certainly think that there would be help to that and there would be something good from it. But if you're judging another person in your heart because their skirt is too short or their shoes are too fancy or their tie is too expensive, you have violated the law of God. You are not loving your neighbor. To have a software system on your computer to help prevent you from you know, being accountable or held into sin or something. These are good, helpful tools. But if a suspicion rises up in your own heart because you have found success with some tool and then find out that one of your friends or comrades does not have that same tool and you are suspicious of them, you have just limited of the infinite possibility of what God can do down to a software. We can get clouded in our judgment and become self-righteous in our own heart as well. To add to the truth does not make it better It makes it a lie. That's the risk of faith, guys. You can have tools and have opinions. These things are good, but I am putting my faith in one thing. In God alone. In His Word alone. In His Spirit alone. For my development. Finally, replacement is the characteristic of Jesus' mission. This is verses 3 through 5. We're going to go much faster now. When we rest in the Lord of the Sabbath, one of the ways that we can find rest in it is that the the Sabbath, the way we read it here and understand it in in this old covenant understanding, is not the Sabbath we're talking about anymore. 
Jesus replies to these Pharisees in 1 Samuel 21.6, a story of David, one they would have known well. And at this time in the story of David, David is anointed by Samuel, by God, to be the next king of Israel. He's God's next man. But he doesn't look like it because he ain't wearing a crown. He's on the lamb. He's running from Saul who's trying to kill him. And they've been running for days. And so they run to a town called Nod and they go and they see this priest in the temple place and they run up to him and the priest is kind of nervous at first thinking, oh man, I think David's here to kill me. (laughs) He says, I'm not here to do any harm. I've been sent on a mission from the king, which was a lie. David had a problem with lying. He was on the run from the king, not on a mission from him. Now David says, we haven't had any food. What do you have in here? Give us it and we will eat it. And the priest says, we have nothing in here but the bread of the presence, or what you might refer to as the bread, the show bread. In the temple courts, there was like all these symbols that were laid out, all eventually a picture of who Christ would be, but there was a ton of them, and they all had rules and regulations. And one of the regulations about the bread is that nobody could eat the bread but the priest. It was one of the perks of being a priest. You've got to eat seven-day-old bread every week. On the Sabbath, they'd take the old bread and replace it with a new warm loaf as the law stated. And that priest would live off of the bread that was taken after its week's service. The priest says to him, we have nothing but this show bread. If you are clean, meaning you haven't been with any women, I will give you the bread. And David's like, you don't know the half of it, women. I've been, <laughs> I've been on the run. The priest gives David the bread And he gives it to his mates and he eats it. What's important about this? Notice verse 5 in your text. Jesus Himself says, which is not lawful. David violates the law. What's compelling about this is that there is not one place in all of Scripture where David is rebuked or punished for the violation of the law. Interesting. If God makes the rules and will never break them, why is He not harming somebody who has clearly broken the law. You can write this down because the law of God is meant to reflect the character of God. And God's character is one who desires mercy, not sacrifice. Who sees loving others as more important than your religious rituals. Who desires sacrifice in the sense of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Who in the Gospel of Mark when telling this very story about Jesus in the grain fields, Mark adds this verse. This I think adds to it as well. When Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus never once broke the spirit of the law. He's God. He's perfect. He's never violated it at all because He is the judge of it. Theoretically, if one kept the law perfectly, they could still be in perfect sin. Romans 3, Paul says, I'm telling you that the law wasn't made so that man could be righteous. The law was made because it was going to silence every man who tried to be righteous. They would fall into sin again and fall into sin again. If I'd say, I can't can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. I just can't get this right. Maybe I need a Savior. The law was commissioned by God to reveal God's character and show the people that they were not God and they needed Him. It was to reveal their sin. The Pharisees then and Christians today express their righteousness by the obedience to rules. They define their Christianity by what they don't do. You ever met these people? Maybe you're one of them. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't wear those clothes. I don't watch that type of TV. I don't. I don't. I don't. I obey the rules. I want you to think about this you non-smoking, non-drinking, non-cussing people. You're walking by a house and the house is on fire. And you look around the side of the house, into the window, and through the smoke, you see a baby in a crib. Oh no. You run to the front of the house, you grab a rock, you throw it through the window, you jump through the window, you grab the baby, jump out the window, into the car, and to the hospital. At that moment in time, you have committed four, count them, four felonies. Destruction of property, breaking and entering, kidnapping, and leaving the scene of a crime. But would you have violated the law in its heart? The very reason that the law was instituted, these civil laws, is so that we would treat each other 
peacefully and well, that we would do the right thing for one another. The violator of the law would be the person who stood on the sidewalks listening to a baby scream in the midst of a fire saying, well, I can't break the law. I'm, I'm, I don't break the rules. I don't want to do that. Beloved, I want to be a part of a group of people. I don't care how many they are. I want to be a part of a group of people who's not defined by what they don't do, but they are defined by who they are. That we are sons and daughters of a risen King. That there is a real God in heaven. And He has claimed us as His own. And my life is going to be a thank you card back to Him in any way I can make it happen. Doesn't that sound more like the character of God in the garden than being a bunch of rules? Second point here is it says He's the Lord of the Sabbath. This is an in-your-face claim at deity. He says, I'm not offended and I'm the boss. I'm the judge of what would be a violation of the Sabbath and I don't think this is a violation. They, you are not in the right place. They are in the right place. You have to ask yourselves, my Sabbatarians may not like this very much, if Jesus says and truthfully says that He is the Lord of the Sabbath, what then can He do with the Sabbath? The answer is, whatever He wants. He is Lord. He is not subject to His law. And as such, when you bring these parables back in that Daniel discussed last week, we see that His decision is to bring an end to the Davidic covenant, to this Mosaic law. He has not come to update our understanding of the Sabbath. Folks, He has come in this passage that sits in your lap to bring Judaism to an end. And He's replacing it with biblical Christianity. We can rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. Point number two. I promise you we're going faster. Maybe not. I don't know. 6-10. through On another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And then the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether they would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered man, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, at all, at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And it was restored. It's another Sabbath day. We're back in a local place of worship. Can't keep Jesus away from church. Even if there's tension with the brothers, He's coming. And He's teaching, and the Pharisees again are watching His every move. Jesus knows their thoughts, it says, and He reveals through this question both the wicked hearts of the Pharisees and the true heart of the Sabbath. The true heart of the Sabbath is, of course, that there is no day to sit by and do harm, and there is never a wrong day to do good. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees like my old baseball coach confronted me when I was afraid to swing the bat. Well, you've never struck out. You're perfect. And you're killing us. Your fervent obedience to the law is making you unproductive. You're doing nothing to the most hurting people. Here's the first application point. The Word of God demands submission. I want you to notice that Jesus is first and foremost a preacher of the Word. He's teaching again. You may be convicted by what I'm saying. You might be asleep. I don't know. Or you might be thinking that you are struggling as you're concerned with somebody else that you know and love and that this message might be helpful for them. And you're asking yourself, What do I do or how could I help? May I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that you too are preachers of the Word. Preaching is not a professional mandate. We can declare the Word all over town. 
Scripture says that for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Paul says, I am unashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of salvation. Preach the Word. Commission to you, even if that's not something that you're willing to do, would you dust off your Bible? Would you wake up tomorrow morning? And when you just start to invest time into the preaching of the Word to yourself, take your, I, I don't know, I'll book that bet. Go out, test me, and spend a month reading your Bible every day. Not checking the box like religious law, but investing your heart into what the Scriptures say. Not the History Channel or a podcast. And watch what happens to the buoyancy of your soul. A few weeks ago, Josh Breffel came here and stated to us all that Jesus' speaking is His doing. And we're about to see that here and now. With the submission of the will of God reflecting the character of God. Notice that the Pharisees are burdened under their own religious system. They are paralyzed in this moment. They have fought God and now they are in a stranglehold. They can't even answer the question. Here's another comparison for you. I think something Luke's trying to highlight. They're trapped, but the man who's paralyzed is free to stand up and even stretch out his hand eventually. The ones opposing the will of God are fighting their way into paralysis, and the one submitting to the Word of God is freed from his paralysis. The Pharisees are asked an easy question and are silent. The man of God is given an impossible task in his ailment and he is able. We are not expected to exemplify or reflect God's character by fighting our sin tooth and nail. By exhaustively draining anymore because Christ's redemptive work on the cross, our fight is now in the spiritual realm. It's with love for our neighbor. It's a fight we can rest in because it's a fight that has already been won. Our task is like the man with a withered hand to simply stand and submit and bear witness to the Lord of creation winning the day again and again and again. Just like God made the Word with a world, to borrow from Peterson, Jesus heals a man by, the will, by His will and nothing more. This man, as it says, his hand was restored and he didn't do anything to deserve it, did he? He obeyed in faith. What a beautiful picture. It's okay to say that God's character makes you... Or, sorry. It is not okay to say that God's character makes you prove to Him that you want Him by your working. That is an upside-down view of the Gospel. It is wrong to believe that I have to obey in order to receive. See, the Gospel says that what Jesus is doing for us has been done. When you invert that into a religious mindset, you say, I have stuff I have to do in order to get to the Gospel. That is a heresy. Lastly, I know quickly here, just consider the man's new condition. Think for a second. If you had one hand, how would you tie your shoe? How would you carry a pot of water from one side of the room to the next? Think about the reminder of the curse of labor and work that this guy had every day. His work was so much harder than a person with an able body. The grind and difficulty, the never-ending, exhausting labor of just having to work constantly and harder than everybody else because something happened to you or you were born in such a way where you are at a worse position than anybody else. And then enter Jesus who comes in, unrolls a scroll a few chapters before and says, I've come to free the captives. I've come to bring liberty to the poor. And he walks in a synagogue with an ailed man, and by the word of his power, this withered person gets rest. 
in the form of healing. Oh, how his Sabbath day would have been to be able to tie his shoes and carry his water and work at the same pace. Jesus is a bringer of rest. Finally, submission does not look like performance. It looks like faith. Don't you see this great picture of this man with a withered hand? It literally means shriveled up. This wonderful picture of him stepping out in faith and receiving a gift that he did not earn and did not deserve. That is the Gospel. Beloved, if there's anybody here who's maybe just feeling like, I don't care if you're successful or unsuccessful, but you just think like the curse of the world is having its way with you, constantly there's work and it never ends and it's always on top of you and the burden of my addiction or my family history or my working world or whatever is just always on top of me and it doesn't feel like there's any hope. Would you just consider coming to Jesus? Would you consider putting your trust in Him by faith? He doesn't promise you riches. He's not going to fix all the problems. He doesn't even give you like some plan for personal wealth and happiness. But what He does offer is eternal life and Sabbath rest in Him. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you, develop a relationship with you, open the Scriptures with you, and maybe, just maybe, show the love of God to you. We're almost done, folks. Trust, finally, in the Lord of Salvation. This is one verse, verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. If you zoom out into the wider lens of the Gospel of Luke and the rest of the synoptic Gospels, you're going to find that this phrase is repeated in all of them. This is the very moment in time, because the other Gospels offer a little more color, this is the very moment in time when the disciples or the Pharisees decided they were going to kill Jesus. We're in chapter 6. It doesn't take very long for their heart and fury to bubble over into utter wrath. But the beauty is that the very action that they were bringing about to secure their religious culture was the thing that brought it to an end. The love of religion leads to a rejection of love. They look at Jesus and in this moment they've had enough They want to keep their system, and so they're going to kill Jesus. And they do. They wrongfully accuse Him and put Him on a sinner's cross to free up their religious life. But when Jesus is on the cross, He makes a statement. Adam kind of, or uh, Cole kind of stole my thunder here at the beginning. He says, It is finished. To understand what Jesus meant by it's finished, we have to go back into Genesis chapter 2. When God who's at rest sees man and Adam and Eve fall into sin, He rises up from His work, or from His rest, and He begins the work of redemption by declaring to the serpent that there is one who is coming. And when Jesus is on the cross, He's saying that the work that God began in Genesis chapter 2 is now finished because of My sacrifice. It was complete. We can trust in the Lord of salvation because He completed the promise of God. Secondly, that when love prevailed and brought a redemption rest, I have to take you to yet another Sabbath. This is a Sabbath where Jesus is in a tomb. He was killed. It's going to burst your bubble a little bit, but on a Thursday, and he's in, a sa- he's in the tomb on Sabbath Saturday. They had to get it done early so that they couldn't touch him, couldn't touch a dead man in preparation. They put him in the tomb, and he is, if you will, having a Sabbath rest of his own. But not for long. Because on the first day of the new week, this Sunday, He cracks open the tomb not only to a new day of the week, but to a very new reality. After opening Himself up in death, He brought all that would who have trust and faith in Him along with Him. No longer would they or we have to fight to keep our heads above the waters of sin and death. 
For Christ Himself had gone down into those waters and rescued all who believed out from under the crashing waves and placed us on the solid ground of God's holy mountain. And we can now say that we have an incorruptible rest in the victory of Christ. He is our Sabbath rest every day. It gets even better. Can you believe that? I got like another point. Should have ended on that. But redemptive rest looks forward to restoration hope. Though now in Jesus we have returned to this perfect spiritual rest. I am at peace in Sabbath rest with God every day because I am in Christ and He is in me by faith. We are still having to work. My grass still gets weeds. There's sin and death in the world. Splinters are still a thing. I hate splinters. Though all of our work can be converted into worship, it's still hard. I'm going to wax Matt Whitney here for a minute. And though all work can be converted, a day is coming when Jesus will crack open not a tomb, but the very sky. And He will stake claim to what was rightfully His in the universe. He is coming to tear down this soiled reality and restore it all. A world with no crying, no pain. A perfect city where sin is not possible and where the perfect and restful productive work are back in perfect harmony. Beloved, there is a day that is coming when all of nature will reflect the very nature and character of God. And if we are in Christ, though we do not have our physical reality yet, we can have hope that it is coming. We will rejoice with God one day when we are seeing His face, walking with Him in the cool of the day, reflecting on the fact that He made good on His promise when He said, come to Me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your deep, vast, wide, and helpful Word. I pray, Lord, that it was an encouragement to us all this morning. And we thank You, God, that You are our Sabbath rest. That the, the, the law was a shadow, a reflection of God's character, but it has now been replaced with the real thing. You, the incarnate Son of God, who has given Himself up for us that we may enter into You by faith. We thank You so much for that truth this morning. And we look forward to how You're going to grow us and keep us today. In Jesus' name, Amen.